The William S. Haynes story is one of passion for excellence. It is the genesis of all flute making in America. Mr. Haynes fashioned his first flute in 1888, thus establishing the legacy of the William S. Haynes Company, and he built a workforce of craftspeople who, to this day, share his ideals of craftsmanship and ardor for the art. Throughout the years, the standards of the William S. Haynes Company have been passed from master flute maker to apprentice. Today, the company is located in a custom-designed modern facility in Acton, Massachusetts, combining original tools and techniques with modern technological resources. Mr. Haynes's collaboration with the scientist Dayton Miller and premier flutist Georges Barrère led to the development of many innovations during his tenure. These advances were continued by the late master flute makers Louis J. DeVoe and John C. Fugetta. William S. Haynes Company flute makers and engineers continue working with today's flutists to develop new features such as the Haynes pinless mechanism that allows for a more comfortable, crisp, and even action. William S. Haynes Company flutes are known the world over for the, quote, Haynes sound, end quote. Flutists enjoy the rich, full, colorful, and even-scaled timbre over a full range of dynamics that is only Haynes. Over the years, our master flute makers have constantly endeavored to create the Haynes sound with flexibility and beauty of tone at its core. At Haynes, we wish to know you in order to make your dream come true a highly customized flute that is an extension of your artistry. Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk. Let's share information. Let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's our final episode of season two, number 22. I'm so excited to feature Stephen Finley. He's with the Haynes Flute Company and has had quite a life performing with the Boston Symphony and working for Powell and Haynes Flutes. So come on in with our co-producers, Justine Sedke and Alan J. Tomasetti, as we explore the life of Stephen Finley and his thoughts on personal resonance. We're also going to have a very big homage to Jean-Pierre Rampal. It's one big story time. For this final podcast of the season, I chose Ballad by Philippe Gobert. It's on my CD of the same name with Tim Carey on piano. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I'm so glad you're here.
I just want to thank you for being on Porter Flute Pod. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. I look forward to a good conversation and some good stories. It would be wonderful. Absolutely. I suppose the first question would be, do you remember when you first heard the Haynes flute? Sure. I was in, uh, I grew up in Nebraska and then I moved to Colorado. I was studying architecture at the time at the University of Denver. And before that, I, one of my very good friends, uh, Mary Hayworth, we were playing Allstate together. And she had uh, a beautiful standard Haynes. And, uh, and she was a fantastic player, beautiful player. And uh, um, Mary, uh, we were playing Candide at the time. It was a wonderful conductor there with the orchestra. And uh, she would just play anything. And she was studying with David Van de Bogart, who had studied with Bob Willoughby. And so he was very good about teaching his students uh, Tafanel Gobert and also um, uh, sight reading. And she could sight read incredibly well, beautiful. It was really great sitting next to her because I was influenced by her greatly. And she said, hey, you want to try my flute? And of course, I was excited, elated, and overjoyed. And I picked it up, and she had tiny fingers, so it was a closed hole. And at that time, I had an open hole, so it was, it was not a problem. But at that moment, the sound was, I never forgot it, and I still haven't forgotten it. Do you remember where you were when you first heard Ron Paul play the Haynes flute? When I went out to Denver to study uh, architecture, with one of um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's students. Uh, I, and I was still playing flute a little bit. And uh, I took a year off after high school. And uh, Paul Hochstad was the principal flute of the Denver Symphony at that time. And he had just retired or was going to retire. And wonderful flutist, and he could play anything. I and mean, he had a phenomenal uh, memory. And Paul was a colleague of Elaine Schaefer and Felix Skoronik and Bob Cole. And they were all in school together. And uh, so he had automatic uh, talents in all of them, wherever they were. And so Paul asked me, would you like to play for in a master class? And I said, sure. And I had heard of Ron Paul, but I had never met him or anything. So uh, he told me that in, in May of 1972. And then I um, practiced Mozart, Mozart D major, and had written my own cadenza. And uh, then, uh, then Paul said, okay, so you're the, you'll be the first one up. <laughs> Ron Paul. And I thought, okay, I'm going to uh, play for Ron Paul first. And uh, I really practiced on all sorts of everything for him, scales, everything, getting ready for him. It was a, a fantastic time, uh, uh, a moment for me, uh, hearing him in my ear standing right next to him because I, I was a little taller than he was. And, and it was just, it was, a, a, it was a perfect relationship. And as for hearing Ron Paul play, and standing next to him 
I remember him not forcing. And I remember he had this purity of tone that was the same in the end of the hall. So it was that, that type of focus that was very impressionable for me. I was, I was just um, 19. And when I heard that next to me, and then I heard him out in the hall play with the Denver Symphony that night, uh, it was a totally la- impression for me. And there is part of the, one of the stories that he had is because he was going to, he showed me how to play trills and it stuck with me for my whole life. And I decided uh, that I was going to incorporate that. And I did. And I said, can you show me that again? Can you show me that again? And then he put his flute down on the piano. The piano was only a quarter stick. And, but he didn't remember that it was only a quarter stick. So uh, he's showing me this and he's right immediately to my right. And he put his flute down on the piano and it was on, there was a, um, uh, a, a little bit of a covering, like a mat covering for his flute. It started sliding down the piano and I turned around really quickly like this. And he, he looked at me and I put my hand out and I caught his gold flute midair. There was everyone went, <gasps> and I'm still holding the flute. I'm holding my flute. And, 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 and he grabs the flute and he goes, Mon Dieu, you saved my life. You saved my life. I said, no, I saved the flute. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he always, he always remembered me for that. I work, I've worked on both of his flutes and his Louis lot, in, you know, throughout the years. But um, he could not have been kinder, great guy, a great, great teacher by example. I mean, you know, he, he kind of says, oh, well, you just kind of breathe, right? You know, like, you know, like he was like this huge, huge guy. He had incredible capacity, but he, he, he used his air so, so efficiently. And when he, when he wasn't so well, um, in his later later years, or when he'd been, I think one time he told me that he had 200, probably more, 265 concerts a year. That's, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot. And uh, one time we met, because he would come to Symphony Hall in, in uh, Boston, and he would, he would meet, we would meet, and then one of my friends, Louise, she had a beautiful townhouse on um, Beacon Street here in, in Commonwealth Avenue. And so... After his concert, we would we would be up until two in the morning, and he would play, and we play. And then we play duets and and sight read anything, and it was a a really uh, impressionable time on how to be how to be uh, good with your colleagues, and uh, and he didn't put up with any of the 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 shadow people, you know. He he really kept things up and upbeat, and it was so kind. He was very kind. And when I was at, at Peabody, studying at Peabody with Britton Johnson, uh, he came a number of times and I played for him. And, and, and he looked at me and he goes, you, what? You, I saw you in Denver. What are you doing? <laughs> I said, well, I went, moved to uh, Baltimore to study at Peabody. Oh, 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 great. This was wonderful. Okay, let's begin. So, and he remembered that I had asked him so many times to teach me trills. So he said, how are your trills? How are your trills? 
And he goes, boom, boom, very good, very good. Sometimes I went in, uh, because he came so many times to Boston, I, I would sit in different parts of the hall, and it's a big hall, 2,600 seats, and I would sit in the first balcony, I'd sit up close, I would sit back in the, the uh, nosebleed section and far away, but I, I couldn't believe how the clarity he had articulation was his one of his real forte but the legato and the sonorousness of the tone it projected as it was you know right right next to me right in my ear and and i'm still i remember i remember going like this close to him and looking and seeing what his lips he said yes these are lips they're lips <laughs> and i would go of course i want to see what you're doing and he goes but i am not doing anything nothing it's all inside, you know, I and mean, this is just this is just the, the 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 release. That's all the release. You have your your little pillars here, and then everything moving. You can have the stuff moving around, but you have to have that firmness there, but flexibility at the same time. And that's what creates a resonance because your concert hall is inside, of course, your concept too, and that is what he really, really well. He preached it, and he did it. Yeah. Even when, after a 260 concert, he still had it. He may have been tired, but he knew that when he got on stage, he had to, he had, it was showtime for him to play. You know? And also in master classes, too. It was just great. Just great. He was always searching for new literature all of the time, unearthing this, unearthing that, all of the, 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 the Baroque and the Rococo. And he played it all. He loved it all. And he played, uh, I mean, I heard him with uh, Maxence Larieu a number of times play together and it was just, it was sensational. It was sensational. And sometimes he could get a little fast and uh, as we know, but I think he really was a very progressive in learning, having brought these pieces all to our attention and also to give us a a really incredible interpretation at the same time, uh, all over the world, you know. So it was, it was, you know, just a big heart all over the world. Yeah, great, great guy. Prokofiev and Frank. Right. <laughs> like, let's go there for a minute. The editor, were you around when he was premiering these sonatas? Yes, oh. yes, yes, yeah. In the early early seventies, he came. He did a concert in Baltimore, the Lyric, and. Uh, and we were, we were just kind of learning it. And, he, and then he played the Jolive. What? <laughs> uh, I went to Ted's music shop in Baltimore across the street and rummaging through a music store that had scores. Remember that, Tadelsis? And I saw a score and I go, what's this, Jolive? And it was a Jolive concerto. And then 
they happen to have the music. I went, what? They had the music. I said, I don't know this piece. I think I'm going to learn it. Okay. So I, I learned it. And uh, Brett Johnson, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to bring in a piece. And I, I want to do this for, I studied it over the summer and I was going to play it for my senior recital at, at Peabody. This is 1977. And uh, he said, okay, okay, whatever you want to do, you do it. You just do it. Just bring it. Yeah. And I brought it to him. He goes, what is this piece? And I had heard John Solom record, had recorded it. And then I heard Ron Paul play it live. And then I went, that's it. That's, I'm doing it. And then I brought it into Britt Johnson. And he went, wow, this is a great piece. Is it longer? I go, well, that's it. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of short, but boy, it says everything. And uh, I was really, really thankful that I had, had been exposed to Ron Paul at that time. And knowing that, you know, he was uh, certainly instrumental in Jolivet and influencing Jolivet and the flutists and also inspiring people to, to make consistently great flutes and to keep that quality that we were talking about personable and, and uh, uh, heartfelt and resonant, resonant, you know, even close that you have that resonance. If you find that resonance and you're not pushing it and, and, but you have to really think, think, you know, tall, you have to really be tall, no matter how, what size you are, you have to be tall and, uh, and that then that will project. That will project. Doesn't matter of anybody, anybody's stature. It will always project. Always. With the fiddle, its lower two strings are a lot stronger and have a lot more power than the flute. And and the flute sails where the you know the top two um, registers. And uh, and he was well aware of that. And he uh, and he employed that all the time. You know whether he was doing the 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 franc and the and the Prokofiev, uh, and I, I remember hearing him in the late seventies play the Prokofiev live, and um, wow, that was just. And boy, did he take the scared so fast! Oh my god! And and it was clean as a whistle. It was really impressive, very impressive. Yeah, and, and he taught his students that, too. You know, anyone that studied with him, no, 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 you don't need to force there. You don't need to force. Be grounded, stay grounded, and have and have a good time. Have a good time. No, no, don't, don't worry about being nervous. But you can have anxiety, and you can have anxiousness, and that will propel you forward. Uh, he, he was a believer in, well, the master classes, of course, which I think are a really great thing. A great deal, and I'm glad that um, all, I think all teachers do do it now. And that was his influence, really, to, to do the master class and have the master classes regularly. And there's so then you're playing in front of people, and you're uh, you know getting nervous, and you know sometimes you know you don't do so well, and other times you do, but you keep going. And he was always one for that: keep going, keep moving forward, move, move, move forward. Don't. Don't back away. Don't back away. So that was, you know, what I learned from him. Absolutely.
I grew up in, in Nebraska. And uh, one of the teachers that I had in Allstate was uh, Donald Lentz and uh, Lila Heisch, who were pupils of Barrer. He was also a conductor then at that time. And a uh, great guy. He was probably in his, he might have been in his 60s or 70s at that time. But at that time, he had traveled the whole world. He had been all over, all over the place. And uh, uh, Lila was his assistant. And so I had um, lessons off and on with, uh, with mostly her. And uh, she was very, very uh, influential. And, of course, they knew of Ron Paul at that time, too. And that was 1968. And, uh, and through the Allstate program, it, wow. I mean, I, I didn't realize it at the time. I knew it was, they, it was really important. And, and that I knew of Barrere then because they talked about Barrera and they talked about this and that and all. Then I uh, was started playing bassoon at the same time. And I loved the bassoon. One of my friends, Marcia Strand, who had studied with a former pupil of uh, Leonard, Leonard Shure, the pianist. She was mostly a pianist, but she was also became a bassoonist. And then I fell in love with the bassoon. So I was practicing and I overhauled the bassoon and I overhauled my flute in high school. I learned how to refinish the, the instrument, and uh, I had my little attic that I had that was was mine alone. I would practice until the cows came home, which they kind of did usually, and uh, eventually. And uh, yeah, and then I uh, worked on that, and then I moved. I, I liked architecture, and I, I liked the flute and piccolo. You know, I did that, played that all the time. And then I went to uh, Denver. And I was going to be, I wasn't, I hadn't decided on music at all. And I uh, heard, and my mother was a very good whistler. She had great pitch and she could trill. If I made mistakes, she would always correct me. She was also a pianist and, uh, and oh, a little dabbled in organ. But uh, her trills, she, uh, here we go back to the trills again. <laughs> and, uh, but she was, if I, if I did the wrong trill in the D major Mozart, I, she would let me know. And uh, so that, that was really endearing. And that's probably why I started on flute, because she was such a good whistler. My father played clarinet, amateur. They're an amateur. But um, uh, I was going to play clarinet. In fact, I, I, I actually uh, have played contrabass clarinet. I, in fact, I have a contrabass clarinet. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so I went to Denver and uh, started was well, started my first year there. I took a year off, and then I started flute, and then kind of architecture, kind of. And then I realized that you know, being an architect is really, really hard. So, you know, not knowing any better, I didn't know how hard flute was. Hey, it's just flute, you know. So, uh, fortunately, I would met Paul Hawkstad, and he was a wonderful teacher. Then I decided I wasn't going to do architecture. And, and Paul said to me, okay, you've got to get cracking. Now's the time. You need to make a move. Either yes, you're going to do this or not. And I said, okay, okay. And then I started um, studying with Margaret Liesmann, who was a, a student of Papatsakis and Moise. And she pretty much over the summers whipped me into shape. And I had two lessons a week. 
and she had a beautiful tone. And then I auditioned for four schools, uh, you know, the big schools, and um, uh, New England, uh, Eastman, um, Overland. Uh, I didn't know about Peabody at the time, Juilliard. And um, I, I got into all of them. But Mariano told me at the time that he was going to be leaving. And I go, oh, no, this is not good. Uh, Bob Willoughby called me up. I love Bob Willoughby, one of my co uh, coaches. I love that guy. I, he's just wonderful in every way. And he said, hey, you should audition for Britton Johnson. And I said, okay, well, tell me a little bit about him. Well, of course, there wasn't much to tell about because there was no inter internet at the time. And I auditioned for Johnson. And it was in June, I was, I think, probably the last person to audition for the school. And, and it was hot and it was muggy, June 22nd, and there was a garbage strike in town. And I walked out and I, and I saw the architecture and I went, oh, wow, this is where I want to be. This is incredible. The big library, the small library, the great, great George Peabody originals and some of the French originals in the, uh, the um, library itself. And then the concert hall, and it was really hot, but um, I loved it, I just ate it up. So then I did a two hour audition for Johnson, and he said, good, would you like to come to Peabody? Yes. <laughs> and so I said, okay. And I said, so how am I gonna do this? Okay, so I talked to my parents, we figured it out. And I came, you know, early, month early, and uh, just got into the city. I love Baltimore. Baltimore is very dear and very wonderful, charm city. I worked a couple of days a week to pay bills and all that. And I had to walk down. I had to walk about a half a mile to the, the Hilton there where I was a waiter. Beautiful, fantastic seafood restaurant, Miller Brothers. And... I learned actually a lot of really French, good French cooking techniques, simple techniques from Andre, who was the uh, chef. He was so temperamental. Oh my God. But for some reason he liked me and he would have me taste test everything when I was there. Uh, it was a great learning experience. And, and I, and, and I brought that with me when I was with Ron Paul because he, of course he loved to eat. And when my friend Louise would sponsor uh, some of the uh, classes after the classes, after the after the classes and and uh, <laughs> banquets afterwards, uh, she she knew it all. She would just write on right on with that. So there's this lineage that goes through it all and uh, learning curve. So then I um, yeah, so I was at Peabody and uh, Britt Johnson was a great teacher, a fantastic musician, incredible technique. And he wasn't the guy to really promote himself at all, but he was a just a brilliant player, just a great player. He and Baker and Albert Tipton, and they all, all were always they were always on the phone with each other talking about this, this, and that. So you were you know in the know all the time. Years later, to do my homework and find out where Mariano was on the Cape, and so. Uh, I finagled a way to get down there and to, uh, I brought Dorio and Fenwick and I uh, in different, different trips went down to 
uh, visit with Mariano. And then Leon coordinated his 90th birthday. And so he, he was uh, very influential in my, my concepts as well. And he, he was not one for really promoting himself as well. He liked what he did. He loved what he did, really. And that was like uh, Johnson as well. Johnson loved teaching. And <laughs> the simplicity factor was really overwhelming. And, and the power of the simplicity, of uh, being simple, uh, having simplicity, was uh, you know, kind of profound in both of them. And uh, Britt wrote in his resume, I remember looking at it and some, you know, some people have, you know, their resumes really long and, and all of that. And, and, and he just wasn't into it, but it's like studied with William Kincaid at the Curtis Institute. He played uh, principal flute in the national symphony. Actually he was principal flute and Dorio was second flute in the national symphony at the same time. And their birthdays are the same, March 6th. How's that? Amazing. It is amazing, right? And then I studied with Bernie Goldberg uh, for three years. Um, I would try to travel. Uh, Johnson had a, had a heart attack, and so he really wasn't teaching as well, so I got his permission to take lessons. So we would, we would load up the car and drive to Pittsburgh and stay in Bernie's top floor, and we all had sleeping bags, and we'd all have master class lessons with him. And uh, Britt and Bernie got, they got along great. And he said, no, well, if you want to, you know, you're going to just drive there and come back. And that's great. So that, that was, uh, that worked out really well. And then I came to Boston in 1979 and uh, started studying with Dorio uh, Dwyer at that time. We got along great. And we were always trying uh, different flutes at the time. We had uh, Symphony Hall and Jordan Hall and the concert hall at BU, and also the Strand Theater, and then the uh, Benjamin Franklin Hall, which is a mini symphony hall. So we experimented with all different types of uh, halls and what, how the sound would project and all this type of stuff. And, and I still do that today when I go to call concerts and hear concerts, whether it's pianist, violinist, it doesn't matter. I uh, sometimes learn even more uh, if it's a cello, you know, or a violin. And of course, vocalists really help. So I, I'm a real avid concert goer. And it also helps because I live a, a walking one block from Symphony Hall, two blocks from Boston Conservatory, three blocks from New England Conservatory, and three blocks from Berkeley um, School of Music. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, you just can't listen enough. I came up to Boston and uh, started working on flutes. And uh, then I, um, and I started playing with uh, two years with the BSO uh, freelancing. And then I won assistant principal flute in Caracas. And uh, so I was in Caracas for a year and a half, almost two years and uh, played that. That was fantastic. I had the most incredible time. I mean, we played at, we, we, we traveled um, all over the country and then, then we played in uh, the Casals Festival Hall and then in Santo Domingo, the beautiful concert hall there. Then there was one, <laughs> there was one story that we have. We went to, in, in Venezuela, there's a wonderful town. You have to drive to it. It's quite a long ways. And we were in our Mercedes buses and we drove to, to Valencia. And Valencia, we were playing Mahler's Fifth. 
about a third of the way through, we start getting a thunderstorm like you would not believe. And it was loud. And the lightning was around everywhere. And then boom, the lightning hit. All the lights went out. The emergency lights came on and we're kind of like, <laughs> right? And then a wonderful conductor, his name was Aldemaro Romero, who was a, a salsa conductor and uh, all of the, a lot of the ethnic music of Venezuela. A fantastic composer, a great guy. I, we got along great. And did so much by ear. He was he knew what was right, even the classical. All of a sudden, he talked to a couple of the Romanian and uh, other violinists and a couple of guys, and they got up and they played until the lights went back on. They were just playing their um, gypsy music and their ethnic Romanian songs that they had strolling violin and they were great they could play anything they learned the russian school of violin wow they were great and those and they were in the violin section and we had some 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 uh, romanian chalice too and I was still freelancing and then playing uh, started uh, doing my own repair and I would consult with people and find you know finding the flute for you finding the, finding your voice so people uh, like Emily Bynan uh, from Concert Cabal came up and, and a couple a couple of other Europeans and uh, um, would find flutes you know, and I would take them out to all the different flute companies and help them find flutes. And then one day, Zhu, you remember Zhu, right? Zhu Fangle, he said, oh, maybe you should come over, over to Haynes and, and check it out. And I go, oh, I only live three blocks from it. So I guess that would be a, an okay thing to do. So I went over and uh, we started talking and, and I um, picked the flute up and I, you know, I said, well, what do you have? I said, do you have, do you have one, that's, one, one that's finished? And at that time, uh, John had passed away. Charlie, Charlie Fujetta had passed away. And uh, Ni Chen had purchased the company. And he uh, actually went to school. He went to school at BU, studied flute at BU. He's the flutist and, an, and became an entrepreneur. I, I decided that I'll try it. So Zhu handed me the flute. And I went, he had me three flutes, actually, and that he had prepared. And it was immediate. I said, this is what I remember from Mary Hayworth when I was in high school. And I, I'm just getting, I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. Me too. And, and I went like, oh, this is really, this is really moving. And uh, I stayed for like an hour and I went wow I was real deja vu and I, I went and played it some more and I did articulation studies I did you know the whole trial legato everything and I said you know what 
it's still there. It's there. It's in the bones, ringing, resonant, but personal, very personal. And, and that's, and I said, okay, but we have to bring it into the 21st century. And <laughs> exactly. Zeus, Zeus said, yes. And I said, but we have to do it quickly because that was a New York convention. Uh, this is in January of that year, 2009. And I said, well, let's try it out for six months. Let's see what happens. Let's see what we can do. And uh, uh, Chen said, we're going to upgrade the machining and new lathes, new materials. And we're, we're going to really do as much as we can to get everything into the 21st century. So we worked like bandits, you know, 10 hours, 13 hours, never slept, always trying new stuff, morning, noon, and night before the flute convention. And we had, then we got to the flute convention and um, a number of players uh, came over and tried the flutes and they were speechless and they were very quiet and can I try that can I try that again do you have a do you have a suite where we can try this we can try it can we try it again and then Haynes just took off again like crazy like crazy and it was that convention the New York convention that really brought Haynes into the 21st century you know and I was like <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even see, see straight, but I was so energized and so, so happy with um, how we were able to, to do it, make it happen. We didn't have very many flutes and we had piccolos too, and just a few to choose from. You don't need a lot, and, but they just really need to, to, to work really well and say something. And uh, from that convention, we said a lot. It was very successful, very successful. And then on that, then we, you know, started incorporating uh, new materials, new um, uh, five, like 5% 5 gold alloy, and then fusion in, fusion out materials. And uh, we've since added 10, 10 carat uh, gold, and then, of course, white gold, and 19.5 uh, carat, yay. Yay! I came home with the Hanes made for me and I didn't play it for at least two days because I was finishing up my Bach. Oh, right. Cello yes, suite. I, I remember that. Yes. I was finishing the Bach cello suite recording and the last day I opened the box and I played Bach cello suites for you. I played the G major prelude on two different head joints. I recorded it for you and we picked a head joint over the phone on the phone, on a recording on the phone. I mean, I think a lot of people might think that I didn't think things through, <laughs> but might I also say it shouldn't be that difficult? Right. I had just come off a recording session with the most familiar instrument I've ever played. And so right. I came to this new baby really sounding like a tub of lard. Oh gosh, Finley, I would go and play Peter and the Wolf excerpt and it would just be horrendous. The Haynes. Everything was new on the Haynes. Everything right. was new on the Haynes for a couple reasons. I didn't have to try so hard, as I said, but then again, 
I had to know what I was doing with my air direction, with my speed of articulation. And right. finally, I called my colleague slash student, Dr. David Brown, and I said, David, you got to practice this instrument. He said, yes, you do. You can't sound good right away. And I said, I love that. It's a whole new world. Right. Yeah. And, and anyone that comes to the shop, which I think we're almost going to be open in the shop for people to try flutes, um, but they can call the shop and then find out when we're going to be open. But it's very soon, which will be a real blessing. But when you come to the NFA or you're going to choose an instrument, be in shape. That's a little instruction for everyone. Don't uh, Try not to come to the NFA if you're going to try instruments and you've just come from vacation. Not a good time to try the instrument because it won't work. It just it, it never does in the long run. And then you're uh, unhappy, unsatisfied, and then you uh, want to return the flute. So, and also uh, listen to your teacher. And if you're going to a new teacher, don't buy a new flute before you get to the new teacher. And then also, um, when you're looking for a flute, you have lots of opportunities with with the number of. Uh, dealers around the country that are really very good. All, all of them are very good about helping out and assisting you to find the, you know, the, the flute for you. And it takes time to really learn the flute. When I, when I got this flute, I, I, you know, I kind of took a long, it took a while, but when I finally made the decision, boom, that was it. That's it. That's the one. And Articulation, you work on slurring, articulation, you play the things that you do know, like anything that you really know that you've worked on. And uh, I, you know, I love the Haynes flute. I love the new new Haynes flute. I love the old Haynes flutes. And, uh, uh, you know, the the new mechanism is a real blessing. You know, this is a real blessing. And um, our scale is great, too. It's a... It's a modified uh, Cooper scale and uh, bring it into uh, the 21st century. And, uh, you know, having great colleagues also helps <laughs> because there's so much involved from the, from the machine shop to the stringing to uh, stringing is the, the keys and the desire of the keys and, and making them fit over the tone holes. And then the finishing department and you have to have a finishing department because they, a, putting the puzzle together right it's so many parts right so many parts depending on on what type of flute you're going i mean we always take into consideration where is it going we know boston is not like the philippines the philippines super humid so we have to really think how is the flute going to where is it going to live and of course who's going to play it but all of those aspects and then of course having Having the option um, with uh, Avon with the, the different types of head joints that you have up to one year to decide on the head joint. And, uh, and the ideal thing, of course, is to come to the shop. And, and as soon as we open, then that's going to be it's going to have a probably be like a flood of people coming in. I know it will be and get your instruments worked on and then try the new instruments as well. Uh, you have the options. You have a lot of options to try, and uh, and then and then live with it for a little bit. You know, and the thing if you're trying the new instrument, I would say just put your other instrument 
if it's going to be your second instrument, you, you just put it away. And then you just focus entirely on that instrument. Don't burn yourself out. Just really intense, five, ten minutes just to know and get up and try it and then play whatever you can. And then articulation, do your articulation, but don't do an hour of something. That's not, it won't, it won't work that way because your focus and your attention span, you know, Moishi used to say no more than 30 minutes. And he said, if you can do less, that's even better. Even though he wrote a million, right. <laughs> a million <laughs> etudes, like, uh, why did he have time to do this? Well, he didn't do that. I mean, that's you. You're the one that's supposed to do those exercises, right? That's a whole yeah. other podcast. Right, exactly. <laughs> Talking about sure. my one and only flute, yeah, it's it is so beautiful. Uh, and you, as a finisher, I can't think of a better human for the flute to you know be born. Right, the flute goes through the factory and it goes through those beautiful hands. I've taken a tour of the factory. I'm sure everyone can. Um, I call it a factory, sure. but it's really just this room of artisans <laughs> sitting together. It's just I, a shop. It's a shop, it's yeah. And then and then you come on through to this beautiful room where there's memorabilia and you can see the history. And but to know that the last hands that it leaves are yours is truly special. So. I just thank you so much for giving us your time and your love today and your care with the stories behind Haynes and behind you, behind you, because sure. we, we sure. love you, Stephen Finley. We wow. all adore you. Oh, I love you, too. And <laughs> and I just want to say, you know, it's it's really everyone at Haynes and it's not just me and uh, the 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 training and the, the depth of the knowledge of all of the makers at the shop, you know, it's, you know, it takes a village. It really does. And if you have something just like in, in what Kincaid used to say, I love this, Mr. Kincaid, why, what, what do you, um, how do you have such good students? And he said, well, I select the best and they become the best. So if you have a really great group of people working with you from the beginning, and it goes through all of those different, different departments, as in the shop, we don't call it a factory, we just call it a shop. And then you, then you have a lot to work with. And then you don't have to second guess the instrument and uh, really put it into a, a neutral area, which is what, what the Haynes is. And then, it, then what it becomes is actually an extension of you, but with the, the Haynes framework, it's all of the, all of the framework. If you don't have the framework, you have trouble. So it's from concept from the beginning to the end. And then, then you put the fireworks on, right? It's everybody. Yeah. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. 
thank you so much, Stephen Finley, for being on Porter Flute Pod and for ending our season two. Storytime is wonderful to spend with you. I'm so grateful for all the fans and the listeners of Porter Flute Pod in season two. I want to thank my producers, Justine Sedke and Alan J. Tomasetti. You know, I'm so grateful for the fans and I'm even more grateful for the feedback. So I want to take a moment to read one of the letters that I received from Amanda in Southeastern Virginia. She said, I wanted to take a moment to send you a message of thanks. Pre-pandemic, I never considered listening to any podcasts, regardless of genre. Then my friend started one about mental health, and I listened to it simply as a form of support. But I quickly discovered that I actually enjoy listening to podcasts. I finally gave your podcast a listen, and I've been really enjoying it. I'm a mother of two boys, a wife, a daughter to parents that have a lot of needs, and mom has secondary progressive MS. I'm a flutist, a band director, and a teacher. Your podcast has given me an amazingly positive experience that I can't quite describe. I listen as I create space in my garage for a studio, and it has become an imperative form of self-care for me. Thank you for being yourself. Thank you for your professionalism and your willingness to share. Amanda, you're welcome. Thanks for being in Porter Flute Pod. I'm so grateful for you.